Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins, and I'm on Zoom with my colleague, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And our very special guest, Robert Gordon. Hi, Robert. Hey, Barney. Hey, Mark. How y'all doing? <laughs> Hi. Great, great to have you here, Robert. In the absence of Jasper Miris and Bowie, who has just returned on a red-eye flight from your homeland, Robert, Mark and I <laughs> will do our best to cope with any technical difficulties that occur. And in the meantime, we welcome you all the way from your illustrious hometown of Memphis, Tennessee. Robert is one of the finest writers and filmmakers about blues, soul, the American South in general, and beyond those frames of reference too. So we'll be talking in this episode about, among other things, Stax Records, Robert Johnson, ZZ Top, and naturally Memphis itself. So I'm going to start, Rob, by asking you, did you grow up in Memphis? I sure did. I thought so. Born and raised in one of the uh, suburbs, one of the outer rings of the tree. <laughs> suburbs built around late 50s, early 1960s, where I was at. So I was born in 1961, and Jim Crow was in pretty strong effect here. It yeah. Still mm-hmm. at that time, still rained. And uh, I remember that I would see the public transportation. We have very, very bad public transportation in Memphis, Tennessee, even still to this day, 60 years later. But when I was a kid, the buses were only used by black women. And I understood them to be the quote unquote maids buses. That's what the public transportation was to a kid like me. I learned, you know, by the time I was seven or so what was going on. But Yeah. yeah, it was a very segregated city and I was in a white outer ring. What would you say was your musical initiation in the context of Memphis as one of the great American music towns? Well, you're making me want to go read. I've I've said it best when I wrote the opening pages of it came from Memphis, but that, that would, that is my initiation. You know, I, I went to the Rolling Stones to see the big, you know, the world's greatest rock and roll band. It was July 4th, 1977, I think. No, 1975. 75, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was 14, couldn't drive yet. And um, they, it was, Mick Jagger thought that when the, yeah, man, you got the original edition. <laughs> yeah, I got the original edition. <laughs> You're holding it up. Yeah. Very nice to see. <laughs> in hardback, Mick Jagger was unaware that when the sun goes down in Memphis, it does not cool off. It just stays hot. He thought if, he thought his makeup, you know, would, would run less if he went on at night. So we had this long delay in this outdoor football field while we waited for them. And they graciously, the Stones graciously sent across town a limousine and brought back Furry Lewis, who was then about 78 years old, a bottleneck blues player. I'd never heard his name. I'd never heard his music. I had my back to the stage looking for my friend who'd gone off to get us a couple Coca-Colas about three hours prior. (laughs) And I heard this noise. You know, and and it was Furry's voice and like his his guitar. He had a wooden leg, so he was kind of wobbly and he was sitting down. You heard the guitar kind of banging and he starts playing and he's talking in this really craggy voice. I distinctly remember, you know, all these years, 45 years later, turning around and going, 
what is that? <laughs> and it was Tori Lewis. And then within about a year, he performed at my high school. And I was like, what is, how'd the opening act for the Rolling Stones end up at my high school? <laughs> and, and how did he? An upperclassman, it was the student council elections. And there's a tradition at, at this school, which I was being initiated into as my first year there, that they would, that, you know, they would provide entertainment as a way to win votes. It turned out Rufus Thomas had played my high school, the Barquets played my high school, you know, lots of people had played. And so this guy brought Furry Lewis. I asked around, I got Furry's phone number, I called Furry. He said, call him up, he'll invite you over. So Furry invited me over. I had to get a ride, I couldn't drive. It was harder to get a ride than it was to buy the pint of 10 high that he asked me to bring him. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I showed up at Furry's drinking whiskey with him and what hit me the most was how different his living circumstance was from mine. And I really feel like, I didn't realize this until I was writing, it came from Memphis, but that's when sort of, that was the Shazam moment. You know, it was not only the musical appreciation that I had, but it was also the awareness of the social circumstances associated with different musics. And mm -hmm. that's when I got into, you know, writing about the blues and trying to understand black culture in Memphis. Was your encounter with Furry more felicitous than Joni Mitchell's? <laughs> yes, I was there well before. I was I was at Furry's not long after she left. Yeah, uh, you know because I was. <laughs> she a, was coming out one door, you coming in the other. <laughs> as, as I recall, it, it was a one door place. I mean, it was you know, <laughs> right. okay. it, it was it, it was there was not much sure. to it. Eight Eleven Mosby, it, it was the address. Oh wow! You know, people would ask directions, and I swear to God, this is the truth. Go past the psychiatric hospital and turn right at the first light where you see the liquor store. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd been going there, you know, I was already a regular, he knew my name when uh, Joni came through. And uh, yeah, you know, I learned a lot. I, I found an old recording. I used to make cassettes with weak batteries uh, <laughs> when I would go to furries. I found one where, uh, you know, I think I wrote about this and it came from Memphis too. I found one where he, there was talk of going to get a bottle of whiskey in the afternoon to, you know, loosen things up. And me and my guests came up with $2 between us. And Furry says, you know, I can't play today. The rheumatism's got a hold of me. And I was like, <laughs> and you know, I think over that time, I learned a whole lot about money and rheumatism. <laughs> <laughs> Was that 811 Mosby Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee? I believe so. Correct? Yeah. It's now, it's now a parking lot. Well, it's actually now a vacant lot. And it, yeah. it adjoins the parking lot of the church. Right. So, Robert, I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Lay it on me. It came from Memphis. What exactly came from Memphis? Can yes. you distill yes. that? Can you? <laughs> <laughs> I liked, you know, I liked the name for just that reason, that, that it was, you know, not particular. I mean, I think that I initially intended it to be rock and roll, but it was so much more than rock and roll. It was the attitude of that went with rock and roll. It was the racial collision that produced rock and roll. It was all these things that were the moorings of the, the late 20th century 
all came from here. I think that's why we're all expressed themselves here. Yeah. You know, so when I went on my first book tour, I would tell people, you got to, you know, you can go across town and experience all these things in your town. You don't have to come to Memphis to do it. People feel a certain freedom to explore the other side of the tracks when they come to Memphis. It's like, you know, they have sexual freedoms when they go to Vegas and they have racial freedoms when they come to Memphis. But on my first book tour, I was preaching, you know, go where the cabbie won't take you, enter the club, be a nice person. People will be nice back to you. And, you know, you may not hear Furry Lewis, but you're going to hear your local equivalent. But I, I do think that all of those things that are other places are here in higher relief. The contrasts are greater. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you also have to honestly say that as a musical center, it's extraordinary. You know, across races, across genres, it's, it's, yeah. it's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the higher r- relief. You've got, you know, the vast cotton plantations mm-hmm. all immediately to the south of here in the Mississippi Delta, which consequently means you have here all the money from those right. you know, plantations. So you have the richest of the rich whites living next to the poorest of the poor blacks. You have extremely rural living next to relatively urban, you know. One of the highlights of giving tours of Memphis was standing with a friend from LA looking at the at our downtown and him turning to me and going, Yeah, so where's downtown? you know so we're relatively urban if not all the way urban but you know you have those contrasts all right here it concentrated everything it's like it's like a very densely packed gunpowder shell sure well that book that first book of yours definitely sort of went way beyond or drilled way deeper than maybe sort of received ideas of of memphis from kind of you know from sam phillips through stacks etc you know it was i love the fact that it incorporated all these very eccentric wild characters you know wrestlers and djs and alex chilton and william eggleston i mean this amazing conjunction of like southernness and bohemianism you know quite quite wild bohemianism um <laughs> and, and, and i was i found myself very drawn into that world because i loved you know i loved big star as much as i loved the sun sessions and i loved dusty in memphis as much as i loved you know william bell's you don't miss your water right so yeah, it yeah. just it's so um it is really intoxicating what were your first attempt robert that you recall to write about music? What was the first piece you wrote or the first piece you tried to write? It was about Furry Lewis. It was about Furry. Okay. I I always thought I was going to, I always wanted to write. So I thought I I was going to grow up and be a novelist. And I was writing short stories all through college. And, uh, and oddly, no one was publishing them. So (laughs) (laughs) that is odd. Yeah. uh, uh, I remember sitting around the, breakfast table with my parents and my dad said, you know, you know, these, you have these good relationships with these musical characters, Furry Lewis, why don't you write about him? I was like, it really hadn't occurred to me, you know? So, uh, I set off on what was the obvious and I did that. And then ultimately I think the first, you know, I, I moved from Memphis to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for college. 
and started writing for local alternative weeklies there. there and that was when there was like various s- strata of local alternative weeklies. And I began working my way up. And when I read Peter Guralnik's Sweet Soul Music, I was, you know, it was classic. I picked up the book. I said, if this guy can tell me three things about my city, I don't know. I'll be very <laughs> impressed. And, and, you know, page whatever, one or three, I was like, okay, I'm very impressed. You know? <laughs> and, and, and set off. And, and one thing it did was it made Jim Dickinson approachable. I was a big fan of Jim Dickinson and his band, Mudboy and the Neutrons, and his whole attitude. And so living in Philadelphia, I said, next time I go home, I'm going to interview Jim Dickinson. And I had read, I was reading Option Magazine. I pitched them. They said, okay. So that was my, you know, first music piece that I was paid for, I guess. Was a piece Um, about Jim? A piece about Jim, yeah. I don't think I've I don't think I've ever seen that, but uh, yeah, I I forgot to mention Jim's name in that little roll call I did earlier, and yeah. obviously he's like a he's a major character in Sweet Soul Music, and he's a pretty major character in It Came, it came from, from Memphis, Memphis. yeah, yeah. And, and and he was quite a mentor for me, you know. He was the one who allowed me to embrace the weirdness, you know. It's like, oh, it's okay to not. I mean, you know. It was the seventies, you know, I was kind of coming into my own in the seventies and, and, and eighties and, you know, punk rock and all the, and the rejection of all these things. But still, Jim opened the, that opened all those doors wider and in a more personal way for me. He, he really, I feel like it was, it was stepping stones, Furry Lewis to Jim Dickinson, you know, were really how my world opened up and allow me to embrace the things that the public was not particularly interested in, you know, as the public left the Rolling Stones concert, much more interested in the Rolling Stones while I left much more interested in Furry Lewis. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. You know, I still remember the picture of Jim in sweet soul music with a big hunk of watermelon, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's one of the defining images of that book as well as Dan Penn standing in the river, I think is another one that, yeah. and we had Peter on the podcast, yeah. I so we were it, obviously yeah. talking about that book, but and we and we were oh. talking about the photographs, weren't we, Mark? And all of Val Wilmer's yeah. amazing pictures in that book, but, yeah. But but I mean, the other thing about about Memphis, it's 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 quite this unique quality whereby it's a segregated city. Certainly in the sixties, mm-hmm. it was a pretty much segregated city. Yet there is an enormous amount of crossover between the black and white worlds when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. What was unique about Memphis, why, why that should occur there in a way that really happened very few other places? Well, it's a, it's, I think it's simply a matter of the population. You know, there's a mm-hmm. very large black population here. So it's basically always been roughly 50-50, give or take, you know, black and white. So you have large segments of each of those populations interested in music. You have a city where there's a lot of recording studios. I think that musicians were interested in cultural exchange, you know, mm-hmm. and on a much more comfortable personal level than the cotton barons, for example. And, right. and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so, and you had these temples where that was okay to happen. These recording studios, I think, right. you know, I think that, you know, Dickinson's story is very, is, is very common. Uh, right. He learned it from the yard man, you know, white, mm-hmm. white homes employed black, helpers 
And the white kids developed personal relationships with those black helpers, the maid, the yard man. And, you know, that's how I got my, you know, was really exposed to black gospel music. The, sure. The housekeeper we had played played that in the car when she would drive us to swim team practice. But I mean, in a sense that that you you said earlier about how kind of Memphis is sort of semi rural, right? Um, uh, that that that's an, a, a byproduct of precisely that, because you you, you know in, in the big cities there's a much greater degree of separation to some extent in terms of that you don't have the yard man. Yeah, right. if you if you if, if you're if you're a, 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 what Americans would call middle class, not what the English call middle. If you're an American middle class person, you wouldn't have had blacks performing those roles around you. If you're in Detroit, if you're in New York, or if you're in Chicago, wherever, so you're closer to black culture just through that default. No, it's very true. It's very true. And 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 our you know our our sort of we don't really have hardly have any urban life here or you know right. apartment buildings in the business area you know it's very mm-hmm. things are separated here business and residential so you do yeah. have you know you people live differently they have a home they maintain with a yard and you know mm-hmm. yeah and and you have people looking for work so that kind of exchange right. was always here and i've been looking at some uh documentaries lately about the South and segregation and, and you see the footage, you know, and it's awful. It's awful mm-hmm. to see that the peers of these musicians, white musicians are just awful people with awful ideas. And, yes. and, and it's amazing that they are, everybody's growing up in similar circumstances in, in a similar society. You know, there's nothing that distinguishes Jim's, circumstance from Henry Loeb's, you know, the racist mayor we had. I mean, they were, Mm -hmm. they were both raised with, uh, you know, in that particular instance, there's some age difference, but, you know, they're both raised with, you know, white, relatively moneyed households that can afford black hired help and kids who have those interactions. And in Jim's house, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the parents, you know, my, my, my parents were, very clearly raising my brother and I to not be racist in a racist society. I think mm-hmm. in part is because we were Jewish, you know, we knew, right. we knew about prejudices. Yeah. yeah. But sure. I, so I think the parents influence on the kids had something to do with it, but hardly anything, but, but there's plenty of circumstances where it didn't, you know, Don, I think talks about how racist his parents were and that eventually he got them to open up to the possibilities of, of equality. You know, Mm -hmm. so it's just, I don't know what it was that makes that happen in Duck Dunn's world, but not in Henry Loeb's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Really interesting. I mean, nothing sums up Memphis music more than the stories of people like Sam Phillips and and Jim Stewart. So if you want to come on to Stax, Mm -hmm. you wrote really the definitive book about Stax Records and Stax Studios, Respect Yourself. Also an incredible film that you made with Morgan Neville. It's so good. And the fact that this guy, I think Jim had been like a, a fiddler in a, yeah. in a string band, a country Texas, band. Texas, uh, like a yeah. Western swing. But, but right, he, right. He, Bob Wills. Exactly. Yeah, West, yeah. yeah. But he and Estelle, his sister, set up in the heart of a black neighborhood, a studio, a record well, shop. Well, I mean, and, let's back it up a second. Yeah. They, they First, they set up in you know his neighborhood, in a That's right, of course. lower middle class white neighborhood, and- 
he makes, you know, his first record is a really, really bad Jim Reeves sound alike record. And that's, <laughs> and that's Jim Stewart's mentality. You know, he wants yeah, to yeah. make awful country pop records and he makes a few, tries a few and meets Chips Moman, who brings, I'm blanking on which band he brought, but he brought a local, the, Largos, I forget what it is. Anyway, he brings a local black band in and Mercury Records pays 500 bucks for it. Jim Stewart's like, hmm, interesting. You know? <laughs> so, that's, the re- that's the real story. That's yes. the real story. It's money you know? money yeah. and rheumatism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not worth the heart of Memphis, my friend. <laughs> yeah. But um, Estelle was the person who actually was probably more alert to Absolutely. the qualities of the black music. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, the move to the recording to the old movie theater where they set yeah, up yeah. the recording studio that we came to know as stats, you know, I think it's overstated that it's overstating it to say that that was a black neighborhood. That was a neighborhood in transition. That, that, right. that was a neighborhood where, you know, TV was killing movie theaters at the time. So, the last thing that had been in that theater before Jim Stewart was a square dance, a weekend square right. dance that used the stage there to kind of, or the floor there to to kind of have a dance. So it was, and when Estelle opens the record store in the lobby of the building and Jim puts the recording studio in the back, Estelle stocks it with country records, you know, mm-hmm. but she finds out very early on that the kids are asking for for Ray Charles and John Coltrane and not for Bob Wills. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, Jim Stewart says that when he heard Ray Charles, it was like he was struck by lightning. Right. And mm-hmm. I believe that. I believe that Jim Stewart, that the water that Jim Stewart was standing in was the $500 he got from Mercury for the black record. And when he heard Ray Charles, that lightning strike, made you know changed him it helped him understand yeah, yeah. why that five hundred dollars was paid yeah. so that set off his direction and estelle was the one who as the face of stacks the one you would encounter she had a very open heart very open mind very kind of doting sensibility her son packy was a total r&b freak you know mm-hmm. um and so he was bringing in r&b acts as well and she was in tune with all that because I think Packy had turned her on to the Dewey Phillips radio program, which was a way that a lot of white people found out about black music. So Estelle is definitely the embracing arms of the South Memphis neighborhood that yields all this talent. Well, Packy yeah. gets a mention in the first piece of yours that we're going to feature on the, on the homepage, which is, I'm so assuming is an early-ish piece by you from 1988. Music and Sound Output, and it's yeah. uh, an interview with Andrew Love and Wayne Jackson of the Memphis Horns, and Wayne talks about the Marquees and Last Night, which 1961 was the first like major hit yeah. that uh, Satellite Records had. Was yes, it? indeed. Yeah, Satellite. Yeah, it comes it out first Stark. on Satellite. And, yeah, yeah. yeah so I think we, because we knew we'd be talking to you about Stacks, we thought that was a good a good piece to start with, and it it takes us back to the start of, yeah, really of that story. And then it, and then it kind of brings it up to the present day. Well, 1988, as it was, then. <laughs> you know, Dang. how these guys, I, there's this amazing quote from Wayne, you know, they'd, they'd played 
you know, behind Otis Redding and on so many classic soul records. And then there's, then it kind of tails off and things get pretty bad for both these guys. And there's this wonderful quote from Wayne Jackson. I went from Learjets and limousines to a hillbilly bus with Marty Robbins. That's culture <laughs> shock. That's cold sweat in your bunk. Yeah. <laughs> such a great Southern turn of phrase. Wayne, man, Wayne, Wayne was just, you just, turn them on, open them up. And like Mm -hmm. beautiful sayings came out all the time. You know, it was, I remember when we, when we left the interview, we we recorded with him for the documentary, the Respect Yourself Stax Records documentary. We were all ecstatic because it was like, you know, you you know, when you leave an A plus interview and that was an A plus interview, Wayne was just a beautiful soul. And I want to plug, he's got, he wound up, uh, he, he's, he's died now, but in his later days, he put pen to paper and wrote his story in three volumes, three kind of slim volumes in my wildest dreams, volumes one, two, and three. Oh. Highly recommended. Oh, great. I didn't know yeah. about that. Great words. That's great. Let's jump forward rather abruptly to to Watt Stacks because it is the it's the fiftieth anniversary of Watt Stacks, and it's not the end of the Stacks story, but it's to go from you know the Satellite Records store on East Macklemore to yeah. the LA Coliseum in yeah. August nineteen seventy two. It's it's quite a kind of time span, isn't it? <laughs> and I so I wanted to ask you how you think about what stacks now. I mean, obviously you wrote about it in Respect Yourself. We've got three pieces. We've got two contemporary pieces: John Abbey's Blues and Soul Report from the event itself, which is just pretty matter of fact. Richard Williams sees a screening of the film. In the company of Isaac Hayes and others, I think Rod Stewart's sitting there as well, in London in 1973 when the film comes out. And then James Maycock looking back in hindsight in 2002, the 30th anniversary. I mean, put what stacks in context for us, Robert. Okay. I think of it in context, honestly. Yeah. You know, when you ask how I think of it, I, I think of it as the fulcrum that created the CBS deal for stacks that got out. It was the, this was the, the, the machine that produced the ability for Al Bell, who was running stacks to reach the brass ring. The brass ring he wanted to reach was CBS distribution. He wanted, they were like the equivalent of all the other record distributors combined, that one company. So he wanted that one company. Al Bell had been a disc jockey and then was hired by Stax in September 65, I think, as a, as a promo man and worked his way up to executive vice president, ultimately buys out Estelle's half and ultimately buys out Jim. Al Bell's deal. So the Watt Stax concert confirms his talents to the world, Al's talents and Clive Davis at CBS, you know, sits down with a negotiation for Al after that. I, I think that Wattstacks got Clive's attention and, and they said, and, and Clive had been trying and trying to break into the black market and hadn't really had any luck. You know, CBS was massive in white rock 
and classical and everything, basically everything but black music. And the idea was that Stax would lead them there. And for Stax, it was the idea that they would finally reach the market that their sort of uh, patchwork quilt of mom and pop distributors had, you know, been unable to take them to. So now they're going to get the brass ring. And the concert itself, you know, is a concert. It's a movie. It's a three LP release followed by a double LP release. It's just material that Al Bell can work and work and work. And, and, and probably all of that combined makes it a statement. You know, Watt Stacks is a statement. It's a statement about stacks. It's a statement about black music. And it's a statement about black audiences. Yes, yes. And it's really summed up by, in one way, maybe, by the transformation of Isaac Hayes into this like iconic kind of sex symbol figure who arrives in a motorcade flanked by Harley Davidson motorcycles. And, you know. But he's in a station wagon. You know, in that motorcade, he's in a he's in a, he's in a station you know, wagon. Chevy station wagon. It's beautiful yeah. of the people, and, and it's gold chains and like just this incredible figure, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, he started out. It's just like a he was just a country boy from Tennessee, wasn't he? Oh right, and and just they like, just him and David Porter just just writing songs at stacks, Por- and, poorest of the poor, each of them, you know. Right, I mean. To go from from that behind the scenes guy writing incredible songs for Sam and Dave and so forth, and then Hot Buttered Soul Shaft, and then yeah. and then what stacks? I mean, he was like <laughs> I don't know what he was like Barry White on steroids or something. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was it's an amazing moment, isn't it? The one we've been waiting for, a bad, bad. Brother Isaac Hayes. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know whether he ever, I mean, South Park aside, I don't think he ever kind of reached that pinnacle, but it kind of summed up what, where, where yeah. Stacks had gone in, in over the course of a decade. Is that Absolutely. fair to say? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. 11 years earlier, 12 years earlier, David Porter was sacking groceries at the store across the street from Stacks, you know. Mm-hmm. And so in a dozen years, they've gone to be, you know, massive hit writers, recording artists, you know, known around the world. And Stacks is this triumphant, you know, the whole idea of the Southern soul claiming the West Coast, you know, that's part of Watt Stacks. It's a sort of big statement of, arrival that's what i wanted you know i want uh, he had the south he had the north the northeast but he uh, you know he was slow he was harder in the west it was further away you know things weren't so national or an international at the time you couldn't get on the web and reach the world so Mm -hmm. it it was a sort of city by city state by state march that al bell was on and this was definitely the, the the pinnacle of it Mark, you told me before we started recording that you watched the What Stacks film not that long ago. And how, yeah. did, how did it stand up for you? Uh, not desperately well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's a combination of things that a lot of really great artists 
produce fairly average performances in what's that. <laughs> or they're interrupted. Yes. It's like the, sta- the Staples singers. Some MC comes on and starts kind of getting in the way and things like that. You know, it, 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 it felt very badly stage managed in a variety of ways. And it's just a, there's some, I mean, Stax is Memphis and Watts is Los Angeles. And they don't seem to quite marry in a peculiar kind of way. Maybe that's me bringing post-facto sort of, you know, Russian rationalism. I, I don't know. Compared to that recent Summer of Soul movie, it's it's a poor movie. I mean, Summer of Soul is extraordinarily good. Yeah, that's a difficult comparison, you know. I mean, for one thing, just the idea of filmmaking has changed so radically from 1970. Sure. I mean, you got 60 years of of exp- of, of film progression. For, Absolutely, so, yeah. So, and, and I'll say that I would... I. Based on the audience shots, it seems to me like the people of Watts might not agree with you that that, <laughs> that the marriage was not so good. You know, they looked to me to be having one very good time. No, I'm, I'm sure they were, but you know, but the again, performances, I hear you. I mean, in yeah, terms of yeah. the stage management, that's interesting. I'd have to go back and well, John that. Abbey in his review complains about there just being way too many acts. Yeah, uh, uh, they really didn't think that through. So they've got all these southern artists there and a lot of them only got to perform one number yeah. do you know what yeah. i mean which yeah, yeah. which is insane also i hate to think if you were actually there because it was a stadium show the pa was probably tiny probably <laughs> for most of the people most of the people in the audience would have hardly heard a thing you know mm-hmm. some vague yeah. noise in the distance but yeah. One thing everybody, either then uh, or subsequently, seems to agree on is that Rufus Thomas really got everyone going with the funky chicken. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and it, it it almost threatened to get completely out of hand, but he, but in his wonderful way, he managed to sort of have five thousand people doing the funky chicken right, and then. then I think that's is that correct? You'll remember from the movie, but oh he manages gosh. somehow to calm them down oh, and. and <laughs> It's like it, I'm surprised it didn't become, you know, that 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 film clip didn't become used in like FBI crowd control training because he just totally, man, you know, down to gets everybody on the field except for the one guy, and then he deals with the one guy in the umbrella. Oh, look at him! Look at him! You know, he 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 gets the guy off the field. It's marvelous. Oh, he's a, he's I mean, such a lovely man. Wasn't well, he? he's an interesting character because. He runs through. He's a thread that runs through Memphis musical yes, history. Yes, indeed. In a way that very few other people did. I mean, he lived a long time yeah. as well. Yes, you yeah. know, in, in an area where a lot of people don't make it past fifty if they're lucky. Right. You know, he was still making records in his seventies. The gods. Good ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, it's a really good great. point, Mark. Mm. I mean, because he was on Sun Records, obviously, for anyone, yeah. Yeah. any listeners First, who aren't aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. First hit on. I mean, basically the first hit on Sun. The with first Bearcat. hit. And basically the first hit on Stax with Carla doing Cause I Love You and then his own, uh, what was his first one of their, Walking the Dog? Was that the first, his first hit? Whatever his first hit was, you know. Sure. He, he, he really, he put both of those labels on the map. It's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really extraordinary. I, I'll tell you, I was honored in my life to get to know him pretty well to where I was writing the Blues Awards and he was hosting the Blues Awards every year. So I would go over to his house you know i'd say okay i got the script yeah yeah bring it by bring it by he'd open the garage door i remember him once he was wearing a matching set of short pant pajamas (laughs) (laughs) invited me in you know got in his bed pulled the covers over okay show me what you got 
and you know we sat around in his bedroom and went through the show it was great oh, fantastic man. that's so lovely that's so lovely you put your left arm up and you're right on too i'm gonna tell you what you gotta do drop your wings feet are ticking now you know you're doing the fucking chicken If we move about 130 miles due south, more or less, from Memphis, we come to Greenwood, Mississippi. And just north of there is where Robert Johnson died in 1938. Probably the founding member of the 27 Club, I think, we could (laughs) could say. The second piece of yours, Robert, that we're featuring is the exhaustive 1991 account of what you call the plundering of... Johnson's like genius and estate. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, piece. it really is. It's a formidable piece of work. Tying in with this, we've also added an audio interview with Billy Gibbons, partly because ZZ Top are going to be releasing uh, a new album called Raw, featuring the late Dusty Hill. Obviously, they were really influenced by Robert Johnson and so many other blues men. Mark, tell us about this interview. Yeah, it's uh, Billy Gibbons on the phone to Tony Sherman, a writer, very good writer about these kind of territories, talking about so basically the, the, uh, Columb- the CBS are reissuing the King of the Delta Blues albums on CD for the first time, uh, and he's interviewing people about that. And he, he talks about, interesting enough, first thing he talks about really is, is about first hearing Robert Johnson and the impact it had on him. And this really rang bells for me because when I was 10 in 1966, my brother had bought Cream's first album, which had From Four Until Late on it, which is they played as a sort of jaunty, sort of really kind of quite pleasant, sunshiny <laughs> tune. And then it's, this friend of my brother's came around with this album with this drawing from above of this guy with a guitar pointing to the corner of the room. It said, Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues. And that song was on it. And it made my hair stand up on the back of my neck. Mm. It was not what I was expecting to hear at all. And and Billy Gibson, Gibbons talks about it in almost exactly the same way as the experience I had. Uh, the the darkness, the the, 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 the the I mean, all kinds of stuff. And he talks about how good Johnson's chops were, how te- technically wonderful he was, all this sort of stuff. But also how there's this extraordinary sort of presence of this, this spirit in there. And it's great to hear him talking about that. He talks about some of his favourite songs. Let's listen to the first clip. This is about sort of discovering Johnson. I wish I could be somehow different than than most of the kids that were discovering about this stuff, but it actually was through the, the English guys. Yeah. And... Um, I think there was an interview, uh, just a, a brief interview in some teen magazine yeah. with Cream. Yeah. And it was a, uh, an Eric Clapton comment yeah. that uh, kind of opened the doorway. Yeah. But upon hearing hearing the, uh, I can't remember what his comments were at the time, but uh, we rem- I remember we, we thought it was dark and uh, it was a, it was a, a smoky kind of, thing because of course most of those uh, those sides had such a a great old quality to it you you really were drawn into that uh, 
the Delta. I'm going to lay, I was wringing my hands and crying. I'm going to lay, I was wringing my hands and crying. He goes into all of the stuff, the mythology, the pact with the devil. He says that he even, a woman brought him a jar full of the dirt from the crossroads. And <laughs> 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 uh, 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 he talks very much about the new photographs, which actually ties in with Robert, with your article about yes. the, the Johnson legacy, people discovering pictures and then sort of like being very, very dodgy about them. He, he like all of us, I think, he was fascinated to see Johnson's hands and how big they were. These massively long fingers, spiders attached to the, to the neck of the guitar. <laughs> Let's listen to another. This is uh, Johnson as a well, Barney. You described as Johnson's departure point. I'm not sure quite what you meant by that, but I'll take your word for it. I think doesn't Billy talk? He regards Johnson as someone who actually wrote songs in a way that transform blues from what he called the floating blues, something like that, right? Well, let's see yeah. if you can hear this. Let's give it yeah, a try. <laughs> I got stones on my pathway And my road seemed dark at night I can't remember who was it uh, remarked that... Uh, Robert Johnson's work is really kind of a turning point from the floating blues, mm-hmm. yeah. where uh, could have been Palmer, Robert Palmer, and you know, in deep blues. Yeah, yeah. that that he really he he created songs, he yeah. created content that yeah. that uh, thematically yeah. was with you from the opening line to the closing. I got stones on my pathway, and roasting dark at Yeah, he gave it more of a poetic twist, you know. He, I think Robert Johnson applied more of a sense of poetry. You know, it wasn't quite that random collection of floating verses as much sure. as a particular mood or image that was drilled in. I mean, Billy doesn't say it that, but Robert would sing about things that very few other bluesmen would sing about. I mean, things like Stones in My Pathway, which is about impotence, is not the, the macho swaggering subject matter of a lot of blues, certainly of, of any time, let alone that time. He talks about the impact of Johnson on ZZ Top and other white artists. And we'll play a clip at the end, but he talks about, well, horrible word, but the, the psychogeography of the Delta. I know that psychogeography is a sort of no-no term. <laughs> we'll, we'll accept it. We'll, but, I've never but, heard but it. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, kind, it's kind of important in this respect that, that so much of the things, the mythology that especially received wisdom about Delta Blues after the fact. But he talks about you go down there and you walk through the Delta and he says you can almost like feel the blues coming up through through the ground into your legs, you know. Now, that may be Billy slightly <laughs> overstretching a point or two, but, but it, it is interesting. I mean, I always love listening to Billy Gibbons talk. I'm, I always worry listening to white blues players talking about the blues. Maybe that's my my. <laughs> I think one thing that I think he's you're getting exactly right there is that is it is a place saturated with feel, right? right. The Delta is, and the idea of the crossroads. I mean, I, here I'm going to go with Jim Dickinson and say, you know, you stand at any intersection, any rural intersection in Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta at night, 
<laughs> right? And you tell me if you, you don't have a meeting with the devil. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's scary as hell. And because right. it's dark and no, no one might have been by in a week or they might be coming by right behind you and you just don't know and you don't know yeah. if they're friend or foe. And so I, I feel like that's very true. Psychogeography, I, I mean, that seems right. The I also feel like the Delta, when when you're driving and you look out at the vast rows of furrowed field and they're going past, the rhythm they present, you know, mm -hmm. is very blues-like. And I think the tractor ride is a very blues-like rhythm. So I mm -hmm. do. I think all of that goes into, you know, the into the sound of the place. I do yeah. think that places have soundtracks. Right. It's interesting stuff. To put Tony's interview in context, he, and we've got tapes of these other phone interviews he did, he was basically, for Musician Magazine, on the back of the complete recordings that Columbia put out in 1990, he was talking to an array of people about what Robert Johnson meant to them. So I think we've got Robert Plant, you know, people like that talking about Robert. And then, so a year later, your piece, which I hadn't read since I guess we first added it to Rock's Back Pages, is really interesting about what you call the, the, the you know, you say Robert Johnson has become a pop phenomenon. You yeah. know, which which may be slightly overstating it, but but given the the hey iconography man, he of those, yeah, I mean he went gold, and this inc these incredible images that no one had seen before, as Mark says, the fingers. You know, suddenly we're all we've all kind of dreamt about this phantom figure, and now he's becoming somehow a bit more of a reality. I, I, tell, you, I tell you, one thing I found fascinating: the, the two more recent photographs that have been yes. produced, which are kind of really quite close up, is. He could be a member of a Compton hip-hop band. <laughs> he could. He looks like a young, hip black kid, you know, uh, in control of his life, all kinds of stuff. This is not like the usual grainy black and white picture of some old dude with a guitar on his neck. Right. No, this is a, this is a, this guy, he could be in a hip-hop act, he could be in an R&B act, but it's not. It's 1935 or whatever it is. I, I, you know? I remember Grill Marcus giving a paper at PopCon where he basically fantasized about what would have happened if Robert Johnson hadn't died. And it, <laughs> it ended up in the hip-hop era with, I think, Johnson as a sort of mogul of, of, of <laughs> a rap mogul i mean it was typical marcus it was pretty pretty far-fetched but you sort of got the point of it oh, what, running one of those southern big bass labels yeah, yeah, the big booty bass labels yeah. i don't know whether he would have could even have lived that long but let's just let's just run with the marcus the marcus fantasy and psychogeography i i this piece returning to it robert was of course so interesting about these two white guys who yeah. get in on the kind of Johnson mythology and the act. They get in, get in on the act and they track down at different times these half-sisters of Johnson's. And then there's just all this really, you know, fairly unsavory and weird shit that goes yeah. on. Mac McCormick and Steve Levere, well, Steve Levere particularly, yeah. doesn't come out of your story very well. No. And we won't, <laughs> we don't have time to talk about all of that now, but I, they're both dead now. They both died in the same year, 2015. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I, so I wondered, you know, what is what is the situation now in terms of the Robert Johnson estate? Who's getting who's getting money? <laughs> Who isn't getting money? Do you know? Yes, it's all the story can, you know, doesn't get I thought better. it might be continuing. <laughs> yeah. it, do, it does continue. 
So in terms of who's getting the money, when sort of the, I don't know, uh, general populace was closing in on Levere saying, you know, you seem to be, all the money seems to be stopping with you. You know, is that right? Can that be? Also, Levere had quote unquote published the songs for the first time, which was a big claim, uh, in a, in a very racist, you know, he created a, a racist, uh, a publishing company with a racist name, King yes. of Spades, uh, you know, claimed, oh yeah, that's a, that comes from one of his, uh, Johnson's lines. Yeah. You know, it's different, Steve, when you name your publishing company King of Spades. Yeah, yeah. So as uh, things began, as, as darkness began to circle Steve, he produced Claude Johnson. Claude Johnson was a gravel truck driver in Crystal Springs, great barbecue stop in Crystal Springs, if you ever go. <laughs> incidentally. Uh, yeah, yeah. Very unusual sauce. Very unusual, clear, vinegary, black pepper sauce. Highly recommended. Um, so he produced this guy, Claude are Johnson. Paid, are you being paid for, for yes. that endorsement? Mm, very tasty. Mm, let me put my sandwich down. That would be a real southern, southern business style, wouldn't it? Yeah. I get mine. I can never think of the name of the place, though. That's the, that's, that's, I'm fired as me and Orson Welles banished as spokespeople. Um, so Claude Johnson said publicly, and we don't know if he was coached privately or whether he, you know, always seemed to believe it. But uh, he said that he was the product of a afternoon picnic in the woods between Robert and the woman who raised him. And then someone else said, yeah, I was a witness to it. And suddenly the courts <laughs> are, you know, say, oh, great, here's someone, you know, here's here's someone who is Robert Johnson's family. So the money gets, first, Steve Levere takes, claims any expenses he wants to claim, and then the money gets split between Steve Levere and the family. And my understanding was at the end of Claude's life, he was looking to get Levere out of it, which I thought was delicious, you know, because <laughs> Levere got him in and now this guy's going, yeah, man, I'm in, you're out. Right. I'll say that I've met one or two of Claude's sons. You know, I never met Claude. I've seen pictures. There's not a, a resemblance, but, you know, lots of children get, you know, I, we don't know. I don't, I don't know that I've seen a picture of the purported baby mama. So we can't say that the kids, sure. you know, who the kids look like, but sure. it see it all seemed somewhat dubious and convenient to me. I'll say that. Yeah, mm -hmm. there are these amazing quotes in your very long and fascinating piece. I mean, just things that just make you chuckle, really. That you know, Levere comes into the picture, and he's like. You know, he's going to go after the Rolling Stones for love in vain. He says, yeah. we have to go after them. I mean, and then he goes after R. Crumb as well, you know, because Crumb yeah. did one of his blues things based, blues based cards, on yeah. the photo. So he's like, you know, and he he, he sent, I mean, he, he, th he threatened Robert Crumb with a, a lawsuit, all this stuff going on. It's, it's, I spoke it's, to, I spoke to many magazine people at the time and all of them talked about, yeah, it was just, they talked about the harassment they got and that when they realized that for basically $75, 
they could pay him to go away, they, they, <laughs> they would do that. You know, they were like, right. oh, it, it right. repulses me to pay this guy this money. But my understanding is if I pay him the $75, he will go away. And he's been such a hassle that it's worth it. You know, right. that, that, that's not my kind of business plan. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Your business plan is endorsing the barbecue in Christmas. <laughs> well, listen, and just down the road from there, there's fantastic cold yeah. beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, just just briefly on ZZ Top. So this album Roar is coming out. It was recorded while Dusty was still alive when they were making that documentary, and they were re- revisiting sort of ten of their most classic songs you know mm. this the the first track that's come out on streaming platforms has heard it on the x but tush is on there thunderbird you know the the obvious the obvious top classics and i mean we we have talked about zz top on the podcast before and they do have a memphis connection of course because they they yeah. recorded it at ardent all the time which i think bill ham loved as 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 a studio so i just wondered what your your take was on the top Robert, <laughs> I want to tell my favorite Memphis ZZ Top story. Oh, please! Which which comes from Stanley Booth's book Rhythm Oil. Yes, I hadn't heard this until I read it in there. Billy Gibbons tells Stanley that they're going to play the Overton Park Shell, still a great venue in town. It's where Elvis had his first big concert, and it's where the Memphis Country Blues Festivals were in the '60s. So they're going to play a show there in the early '70s. And as they're approaching the building, there's this, they, they see this, uh, middle-aged black guy throwing dirt clods at this middle-aged black woman, right? You know, just like kind of assailing her from some distance with dirt clods. Later, they're playing on the stage or the opening act or someone's on the stage and they invite out the great Hill Country harmonica player, Johnny Woods. Johnny Woods learned, he, he was the longtime accompanist to Fred McDowell, mm-hmm. you know, deep guy, great player. And they bring out Johnny Woods and it's the guy who's been throwing the dirt clots. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. So that's kind of an interesting insight into, you know, what, it, what it's like to, to play the blues in Memphis. Yeah. I remember another Billy Gibbons story from Arden was they would come basically once a year to make an album there. And I showed up one day. It was right after DAT tapes had been invented. I was doing some work around Arden on a freelance basis. And I look over and there's this big stack of blues LPs in the night guy's room, like the place you would knock to get into the door at night was the night guy's room. And and I said, oh, you know, that those look great. What are they doing here? And they said, oh, Billy Gibbons arrived. And he walked in with this big stack of LPs and said to the night guy, here, put all these on DAT for me. <laughs> I was like, man, that's a good use of your recording studio time. That's fantastic.
Hey, I want to throw in one more Robert Johnson thing because one of those new photos is on the cover of the book by Annie Anderson, Robert's stepsister. The book's called Brother Brother Robert. Robert. Yes. And it's a real person. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. Okay. That's the point I want to make. It's her telling of being in the house with him. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she has this great memory, recalls his pomade, talks about him that really takes the mystery away and instead of revealing this dark character, reveals this kind of really happy music fan. And mm-hmm. I thought that it really was a service to Robert Johnson to bring out these this depth of his character. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. I, that's, that, that's slightly keys in what I was talking about the photographs, is that yeah. you, you get this the youth and enthusiasm. Yep. You know, yeah. Anyway. Wonderful. Well, it was so great to speak about all of that with you, Robert. We're now going to hear from Mark about some of the pieces that he's enjoyed adding to the RBP library. And please just pitch in if anything, you know, prompts you to do that. Over to you, Mark. Yeah, well, the, the first one's kind of, sort of gold dust in a way. It's uh, this guy, Tony Brown, writes for Melody Maker in March 57. And it's a report on an English visit by Frankie Lyman and the teenagers. Now, I had no idea that they ever came to England. This was complete news to me. I'm absolutely, I, there's not a lot of it. But the bits of Frankie Lyme teenagers, which is a good, are just fantastic, really high class doo wop. And but there's there's all kinds of stuff going on. It's just the relations of fourteen year old Frankie Lyman with the teenagers are very much dependent on the ability of Frankie to drink in his personal success without getting tipsy. <laughs> Report, <laughs> right. Report, reporters and photographers who met Lyman and the boys were considerably irked at the difficulty of getting Frankie on his own. This self possessed and pint sized juvenile was the best copy so far as the national newspapers were concerned. There were angry mutterings when he seemed to drag the teenagers into his own limelight. Now, that's because the rest of the band were fed up with him being interviewed all the time. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those in- internal sure. bands. But it was just great to have a piece, a contemporaneous piece on Frankie Lyman on the site, because there won't be many of them. Well, it's one of, it's just one of the saddest stories of the American pop yeah. dream, isn't it? Yeah. This kid who's such a wonderful singer. And yeah, such yeah. an exuberant presence, like like sort of the little Michael Jackson before we, before he first emerged. Absolutely, and then, I remember when I first, whatever you know, however young I was, finding out that he had died of a heroin overdose in 1968. It just seemed it's Morris so Levy. pitiful. Morris Levy, right. he's a classic victim of Morris Levy's yeah, horrible records horrible and all of that story. sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, Andrew Lou Golden being interviewed by Maureen Cleave for the Evening Standard in 1964. This is 1964. This is like, you know, Stone's era. And he's so full of himself. So he says, I'll be a fool to walk out on that loot. I'll need my head seen to. The loot is the only consolation in this business. <laughs> the loot. <laughs> John Abbey interviewing Sarita, 1973 Blues and Soul. She says, I was Diana Ross's musical garbage can for a few years because the songwriters who couldn't get through to Diana ended up bringing their songs to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, this is a great piece. I'm really glad to get this. This is Ed McCormack 
visiting the offices of Punk magazine in New York in 1977. This is John Holmstrom on describing Legs McNeil. He says, besides being such a perfect punk adult, Legs is like a really primitive creative genius. So I just, just, it's just great to have that. Interesting, it's quite sceptical. Rolling Stone, even though Ed McCormack was pretty au fait with the New York scene, didn't really understand punk magazines. No, I wouldn't <laughs> even have imagined that Rolling Stone even acknowledged punk magazines because yeah. uh, I don't think I ever saw that piece. So it's interesting that they were at least paying attention to these yeah. threats. Uh, had, had Rolling Stone just moved to New York at that point, 77? Uh, I think they, that's a good point. Yeah, around then. I think you're right, yes. mid-70s it was. It was so maybe they it? were just becoming a bit more concerned yes. with New York things. Yes. Um, 1985, Zigzag, Mick Sinclair, who recently got on board, which is great, uh, interviewing XTC's Andy Partridge. And uh, Andy Partridge says, Punk was necessary, and another big bang is necessary now. To clear the light, away the likes of, well... Us, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, this, I love this. He says, I've met Boy George a couple of times. I was most impressed by the size of him. He's like a side of bacon. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, 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 posted, I posted it on Facebook and loads of people piled in saying exactly the same thing. They're staggered by the size of Boy George. I, 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 He's, I'm not sure that's how George would have wanted to have been pursued. <laughs> 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 but, but I, I love it. it goes, so goes against the grain yes, of his exactly. It's exotic, kind of, of, kind of no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Brilliant. Um, now this one, this Kath Carroll reviewing Lester Bowie's Brass Fantasy at the Town and Country Club in 1986. And the reason why I raise this because I was at that show and it was fantastic. Okay. I mean, Robert, have you? Is Lester Bowie someone who's ever crossed your oh, territory yeah. much? Oh yeah, only, yeah. only through uh, reading about him in press and then seeking him out. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, 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 you know, certainly our colleague Martin Collier and myself fell massively in love. But when we went to record our version of Crazy with Ron Have Mercy Kersey, who was a member of the Tramps, and we played him that version, and he was just baffled by it. So this is kind of L.A. Funker, funketeer, sort of couldn't make head or tail. But anyway, she, she says, sliding, disintegrating brilliantly, he oozed into the adulterous shadows of saving all my love for you. Then interpreting Patsy Cline and Fats Domino through a variety of moose calls and looming foghorns, the history of popular music was being rewritten as Kentish Town stood still. Wow. It was really that good, yeah, honestly. Yeah. It was just, just one of the great shows I've been to. Coming in this week, that's all last week's stuff. Coming in this week, um, again, Maureen Cleveland, Union Standard, interviewing Alma Kogan. This is our very first Alma Kogan piece. Uh, Robert, I don't know if you know anything no. about Alma Kogan. She, 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 she was a, a white pop school from the late 50s, early 60s in England who was hugely popular and then his career was basically destroyed by the advent of the Beatles. Though, funnily enough, the Beatles became quite good personal friends of hers and hung out with her. Then she died of cancer very young, in 1966. Mm. Gordon Byrne wrote this novel uh, uh, called Alma Kogan. Yes. So she developed she developed this kind of weird cultural sort of afterlife, hmm. if that makes any yeah. sort of yeah, sense. Yeah, she did. She, uh, she says, I haven't got an aloof nature, but I take a good look at people before I like them. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, that's, um, Pete Townsend being interviewed by Maureen O'Grady in 1965, and it's about, about the mods, and he says, those are the days when about every four days a different look would be in. Polka dots, denim jackets, and all of that. 
<laughs> Going up to 1966, Philip Elwood reports on the Longshoreman's Hall Trips, Trips Festival, January 1966. This is psychedelic. Major, major event, wasn't it? Yeah. A major event in the Hate Ashbury story. Well, well, he wasn't terribly impressed. Thousands of people (laughs) arrived at the hall each evening expecting to find out what a happening was, but most of them departed disappointed. Because a happening is a sometimes thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, that's great. That's great. I mean, El, Elwood's fantastic writer because he's a straight, straight jazz writer writing for San Francisco Examiner. But he was very good on psychedelia. Had a very stuff. open mind, didn't he? Very yeah, open, yeah. unbelievably yeah. open mind. 1970, Sly Stone being interviewed by Roy Carr and Richard Green for the NME. I might interview one who uses the word with kind of inverted commas very cautiously because he's impossible to interview. Uh, so amongst the few answers actually got, they asked him, uh, why he was never tur- he wasn't turning up to shows, and he says, as far as I'm concerned, I'm always there on time. It's not my fault if the promoters alter the times of my appearance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sly's <laughs> alternate reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very lastly, 1982, Gang of Four's Andy Gill, the great late Andy Gill, being interviewed by J.D. Considine for Musician Magazine, and it's just this is a classic bit of, sort of post-punk verbiage. He says. There is a kind of belief that inaccessible music or music that refers to avant-garde structures or conceptually based music is necessarily a better carrier of radical ideology. I think we came to see that as being an erroneous idea. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and rollers, they really know how to talk, God. don't they? <laughs> Andy Gill is actually one of my favourite guitar players. I'm, I'm not a huge post-punk fan, but his guitar playing with the Gang of Four is electrifyingly good. He, and he died... He's a very early COVID death. Mm. I, I believe it was very, very early in 2020. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, that's my that's last. Your lot. Got any I've got I've got three things I want to mention. One off the back of our stacks discussion. It's another transcription we've done of one of our audio interviews. So in a way, it'd be easier just to play the audio, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's Booker T. Jones talking to Joel Selvin in 2006, and and mm. it's just a an amazing little account of writing Born Under a Bad Sign. Ah. William Bell came by and said, we needed to write a song for tomorrow for Albert. He came over to my house and I will <laughs> never, ever forget this day. I had a little rumpus room built in the back of my house. I had a little piano in there and a door. So I had to close the door because my wife didn't want to hear the noise. So I started <laughs> thinking and thinking. I remember coming up with the riff. And then William put his thinking cap on. And the next thing I know, he's singing Born Under a Bad Sign. Oh, my God been down since i began to, began to crawl that's it that's it man we wrote that <laughs> we just sat there and wrote that song i don't know how it happened we got to bed about 1 30 or 2 in the morning got to the studio the next day started teaching the song to steve and al jackson and duck dunn we started playing the song steve and duck played the intro and then albert played that lick on top of it and oh man it was just like lightning hit he just wow. lit it up Wow. And I just like, I mean, I do, isn't it just one it's of fanta- the- it's, a fa- it's, a, it's a fantastic record. I might, um, when I was hanging around with John Mayles' kids back when I was at school, and in the basement of their house in Orham Square, Jason had all of his dad's old records in the line against yeah. the wall. And, and, and that album, the Born Under a Bad Sign album, we'd fish out every time. <laughs> it, 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 you know, I'm like 13 or 14. It's like, this is fantastic. It, you know? it, it just is glorious, isn't it? Here's one, of the, here's one of the, one of the few bluesmen who actually managed to really connect with a very modern sound. Yeah. Which, which didn't sound self-conscious or anything like that. It just felt complete. Natural. Yeah. And of course he, he was at, St- he was at what stacks yeah. on the, so I've got my original cut out vinyl. Thing here. <laughs> <laughs> he plays killing floor. 
He plays our play yeah. the blues for you and he plays and he plays Angel of Mercy. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful yeah. stuff. But wait, isn't it great? Isn't it great that, that those guys can just like, you know, they meet at a house around the corner from the yeah. studio where Booker yeah. lives. Yeah. Williams from the neighborhood. They yes. like come up with a song. I know. I mean, it's a stone classic. It's, it's, they, uh, they they go to the studio. The next day, it's like, we have to do it the next day. Otherwise, we'll forget it. Yes. <laughs> they go to the studio. <laughs> and, you know, it's just unbelievable the way that happens. It's a great Fine. story. And, and Booker's wife didn't want to hear the noise. <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing. So the second piece off the back of your quoting from the punk magazine piece we were just talking about is an interview from summer 2000 with the great Richard Meltzer. This is uh, Jason Gross from Perfect Sound Forever online music magazine. And it's just a fantastic interview with, with Meltzer. And he talks about just getting so sick of you know, rock music that he just Mm. went back to jazz and then punk happened. And I found punk and jazz so compatible punk and the most cacophonous avant-garde stuff. To me, they were the same thing. They were both concerned with the primacy of sound in a way that rock hadn't been for years. And then he talks about crawdaddy and he says, you know, nobody got paid. So they couldn't tell you what to write. You wrote what you wanted. And there were three or four of us doing this stuff. Sandy Perlman, who we were talking about in the blue oyster cult theme the other day with Deborah Frost, Sandy Perlman, John Landau, Paul Williams, everyone picked their own little niche. He says, it didn't feel anything like journalism. If anything, it was like ringside coverage of the sun coming up. (laughs) It felt like being nurtured, like being constantly invigorated, like the maximum hand you could expect to be dealt with by life itself. Mm. And he also mentions, he mentions that Jimi Hendrix thanked me for writing these things. It's fascinating, the idea of Hendrix reading Crawdaddy yeah. and like, hey, yeah. I, I dug that piece you wrote, man. <laughs> I mean, wonderful. <laughs> so, so, and he says, it's a wonderful thing. He says, um, you know, these people dealt with me as a co-conspirator. For about 10 minutes, writers were considered co-conspirators. By the 11th minute, we were just the service trade, <laughs> which is fantastic. He also that admits is. that one of the reasons he got banished from the Blue Oyster Cults in a circle is because he behaved badly at Buck Dharma's wedding. I love that. I can imagine he got very drunk probably and sort of, you know, tipped things over. And then the last thing he talks about, Lester Bangs, and he, this is kind of typical – you know, noise boys, gonzo bitterness. Everyone asked me about Lester at some point. It's become tiring. I was as big an influence on him as Kerouac was. So blah, blah, blah. If I have to be a footnote to Lester at this point, fuck it. It annoys me. Fuck it. It annoys me. (laughs) My writing predates his by three or four years. To be a footnote to Lester is like Kerouac being a footnote to Gregory Corso. I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, if, if, if anyone out there cares about this inside baseball kind of level of engagement with with rock journalism, it's an incredible interview. I do think Meltzer was an extraordinary writer. I mean, you, Robert, as as a music writer, did you engage with with those sort of you know the original Crawdaddy? writers did you ever read them not so much i mean well yeah i read them some you know trying to think like who were the 
it's funny because when all of us were kind of starting out, these books were harder to find. I mean, I wrote my first one. It came from Memphis because I couldn't find any information about them in the other books, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to remember sure. like the classics. I, I remember writing to Rolling Stone when I was in high school to see if I could write for them. Yeah. No reply. Yeah, sure, sure. You never read The Aesthetics of Rock by R. Meltzer, I take it. I did not. There's still time. I mean, it's, okay. it's, it, 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 it's like every other paragraph has like references to sort of Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, and it's, it's, it's deranged, but, but rather magnificent. The last piece just is a long retrospective piece about the specials from Mojo by uh, Lois Wilson. And it's just got this great story about the specials playing the Moonlight Club in um, West Hampstead, Mark. I'm sure you you went to the Moonlight Club. I played the Moonlight Club. You played the Moonlight (laughs) Club. Yeah, sure. Uh, This is a famous club, Robert, where like Joy Division played. And I remember seeing Nick Cave's The Birthday Party. It was originally a place called Cook's Creek. Creek. Uh, and the, it's famous partly because the Decca recording studios have butted directly behind it so they could wire through to it. So live albums would be cut out all the time because they could directly wire them from the Decca recording yes. studios. Wow. That's absolutely so, right. Well, so you get things like 10 years after live at Cook's Creek. Right. So, so <laughs> the specials played there on May the 2nd, 1979. And the day after that, Margaret Thatcher became the prime minister so lois mentions this and then she quotes from actually as it turns out one of our one of your fellow contributors to rock's back pages robert uh royston eldridge who at that point was an a and r man for chrysalis records and he goes to this gig and this is what he says i was running around town catching half a dozen groups and to be honest i've gone to the moonlight expecting absolutely nothing I'd seen the Lambrettas, Secret Affair, the Merton Parkers, and I thought they were all lame, but the specials, (laughs) wow, it was jaw-dropping. You felt yourself being drawn into it. There was a sense that you had to be there experiencing it. They had energy, passion, politics. They made you dance. They made you think. They're still the best unsigned live act I've seen to this day. So I thought that was nice. Thank yeah, you, Royston Eldridge. We must get him on the podcast at some point. I love what, I, I love his, his name's obviously Roy Eldridge, but there's a famous jazz player called Roy Eldridge. So he, so he renamed himself after one of those small towns just north of London <laughs> in Hertfordshire, Royston. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, so that brings us to the end of the episode, and it only remains for us to thank you so much for joining us, Robert. I would urge anyone listening to this episode to go out and buy some, if not all, of... Robert's amazing books and, and the barbecue at my favorite place and, in Crystal and go, to, go to Crystal Springs, Mississippi. <laughs> but I mean, and also, you know, the, the incredible films that you've made. I mean, that's, oh, it's been a, a, as important a part of your career and CV stranded in Canton. We don't have time. I have to do another episode. But there <laughs> no, are amazing wait, 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 by the way, is it, is it true that William Eggleston turned Alex Chilton on with acid at the age of 11? Hey, the, the, the story is that he gave Alex peyote, and I really don't think it's true. Okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I think Jim, Jim Dickinson thought it was true. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. I, Sorry, Jim likes to want... believe things like that. <laughs> I, 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 I will I just, say, I did... you know, having done a lot of research based on things Jim told me, Jim Jim almost always spoke the truth, right. you know, 
And what wasn't true, there was a kernel of truth in it. So I don't know the, I know that, you know, Eggleston was friends with Alex's parents. Yes, Alex's right. parents had a, had a art gallery in their home and that kind of thing. Yes. But uh, I, I just, I don't think Bill was handing out peyote buttons to 11 year olds. <laughs> I think you yeah, you sound pretty confident in that judgment. <laughs> so we're going to go with you on this. <laughs> but listen, thank you. It's so nice to see you. Um, yeah, man, I, great. You said it's really? going to get to 101 in in downtown Memphis today. <laughs> <laughs> so stay cool out there. I, I will be in the air conditioning, and anybody is welcome to come join me. <laughs> Cocktails on me. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Well, listen, you know, more power to you. Thanks for joining us today, Robert. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it a ton. I want to say th- I want to say thank you because it was really fun. Oh, good. It's go huge stuff. fun. And Barney, you know, when I was putting out the 25th anniversary edition of It Came From Memphis, I came across your review of the original edition, which I got to say, man, it really, it, and I know you're posting it on the on, on the website. Yeah. It really gives a lot of context because it, as I wouldn't say prevalent or popular, but as as quote unquote well known as Alex Chilton has become, your piece really sets the context for the time when the book was coming out uh, that there was so little information out there, and it made me feel really good about the things I'd accomplished in the book. So thank oh, you well, for listen, the astute piece. Thank you. I mean, and I just you know also just to mention that I remember the first pieces you wrote for Mojo, because I was on staff at Mojo at that point, and you wrote two or three really big, like meaty pieces, one about Dan Penn, one about Jim Dickinson, as I recall. Mm -hmm. I think we have them on the site. But they were, I sort of thought, wow, this guy is sort of going beyond what Peter did in Sweet Soul Music, you know, and really, really immersing himself in in the stories of these amazing characters. Anyway... Let's move on. We'll say goodbye. Thank you so much for joining us, Robert. Yeah, guys, thank you. And, Mark, we're just going to go out with this final clip from Billy Gibbons. What? The psychogeography of the (laughs) the South. Of the South. Wonderful. My contention is that uh, the the landscape, even though it has changed and and the... uh, Forms of commerce are different. Mm. You can still see it wiggling right out of the ground when you're there. Yeah. And still see what? Still see the blues. <laughs> just, yeah. it's just there. I went to the crossroads. Well, down on my That was Billy Gibbons in conversation with Tony Sherman in 1990, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Robert Gordon. The 25th anniversary edition of It Came From Memphis is published by Third Man Books and available now. Visit Robert's website at therobertgordon.com. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Mm-hmm.